Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. This is a series of in-depth conversations with visiting scholars to the University of Washington and with UW scholars as well. We cover a variety of topics in wide-ranging interviews that I hope take us to new and surprising insights. But of course, it is the journey that matters as much as the destination. We do have to have a social movement to transform our society to keep the things that we like, that we need, but to keep them from killing us. There's an obesity epidemic in America, and it is spreading around the world. Shriki Kumanyika is a scholar in the field of nutrition and public health. She is Professor Emeritus from the University of Pennsylvania, currently president of the American Public Health Association, a nonprofit focused on the goal of raising health outcomes in America. What tastes good to us is manipulated in foods because of the types of foods that we're given. And there's some good data, in adults at least, to show that people's preferences can be changed. Professor Kumanyika visited the UW as part of the Wellness and Weight series, spring 2015, to give a talk, 30 Years of the Obesity Epidemic and Counting, Reflections on Lessons Learned at Home and Around the World. Her name, by the way, Shriki Kumanyika, is the name she took on to reflect her changing political values. It's not the name that my southern-born parents gave me. I was christened Nina Bell Adams. <laughs> A good Southern name, you know, you got to have a middle name, a Bell, Anne, or May. <laughs> and um, when I was, uh, I guess, my 20s, the Pan-Africanist movement, I was living in New York City, uh, made us very conscious that uh, black Americans didn't have a homeland. We were transplanted and didn't have a heritage that went back far enough. And so my husband at the time and I decided that we wanted to have African names reflect our heritage. It was difficult for my parents, partly because my parents were of a vintage where the association with Africa was not something that people had been proud of. But I felt strongly that I wanted to be somebody with a heritage. I took a trip to Africa and, and uh, visited six different countries. We changed the name to something that spoke of uh, our political leanings, wanting to, to give service to uh, people of the land and be aware of the crisis, the ongoing crisis for um, people in the African diaspora. So I changed my name. Shiriki Kumanyika was Associate Dean for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology and in the Nutrition Section of the Department of Pediatrics. We met at the DECA Hotel in their boardroom above 45th Avenue in the U District in Seattle. You might hear the rumblings of the traffic or the faint whisper of the Muzak from their lobby. The long table held a few Cokes and a few bottles of water, emblematic, you might say, of the problems and the solutions to this epidemic. Tackling obesity means grappling with a wide range of personal, social, and economic factors that influence body types and body size. Sometimes the studies reveal some surprising twists. The research on obesity has been primarily on people seeking treatment for obesity, and that's a primarily white population. It's been primarily female. And so it leaves out a lot of other groups who have obesity. Men are in some studies of obesity because 
obesity is studied as a uh, treatment or a preventive measure for hypertension and heart disease and diabetes. But the general weight control literature is, is, is uh, biased towards people who, um, who want to lose weight. Uh, in the black community, there are people seeking treatment for obesity, but they're very poorly represented in the overall literature. So in, in 2002, I started an, an organization called the African American Collaborative Obesity Research Network um, to bring together a lot of people I had met in my travels who wanted to um, do some research or were doing research on this issue and felt that the issues were different from things they had observed in their own lives. Examples? Um, the way people think about their bodies as a part of their self-image is different across cultures. The value for being um, thin or at the weight that might be considered normal weight differs across cultures and it differs over time. Um, so some of the things that have come out in the literature are that for black women there's less of a penalty for being overweight or obese socially. Um, and there may be some advantages to being heavier in terms of um, protection or an image of nurturing. A lot of the images of black women, if you think about what you see in the media, are um, of heavy women and much more likely to be heavy and accepted than if she were a white woman. So black women's self-images, and of course everything I'm saying is a, general, a generalization, are uh, less dependent on how much they weigh. Whereas in the white community, um, for example, one of my students said once, you know, you, you asked this question, um, do you think your figure is attractive or do you think you're attractive separately from asking, do you think you're overweight? And she said, well, it's the same thing. She was from Germany, and, she, and so I said, well, some people could think they're attractive even if they're overweight. And she said, how could they? You know, so they're just very different in, in what the priorities are. Um, also, as we began to understand more about the obesity epidemic, we realized that the, um, first of all, the, the more obesity in black women, higher prevalence in terms of the way we define it, has been observed since, um, you know, back in the 1960s, I guess. So, so why are more black women overweight? And are some of those reasons not going to weight control programs, which, you know, sometimes at that time especially didn't work very well? Or is it that they're living in environments where the things that lead you to gain weight are more common? So that's another reason why people wanted to study it differently, because they're saying, well, people try to lose weight, but the neighborhoods they live in, you know, those foods are more expensive that they would need, or they don't have as much time because of family responsibilities, um, maybe being in a female-headed household, to fuss over their food, or their family is looking for a type of food that is fattening, and the woman can't really extract herself from those food-related roles. So 
you know, differences. These are complex issues, and they're all intertied. You're a scientist, so when you use the phrase obesity epidemic, what does that mean to use the phrase epidemic? That's interesting, and it's been controversial to call it an epidemic because we usually use that for um, infectious diseases. It's really, when, when obesity becomes embedded in society, it's really a pandemic. It's, it's something that's everywhere and a characteristic of the population. But the term is used to say to people, this is something that has risen in its occurrence, it's affecting a lot of people. It may continue to rise until a peak and then only go down when the solution is found or when the factors that are causing it disappear. <laughs> and the factors that are causing obesity are probably not going to disappear on their own because it's the way we live. So I feel comfortable calling this an epidemic. It gets people's attention and it says, you know, this, this is spreading it's now affecting your children. It's not because all of a sudden people had a, a sudden mass failure of their willpower for eating, you know, the, the ice cream. It's, it's got to be something else in, in society that's an agent that's causing this to happen. If you can look around the world, you can see factors moving across the world. So what do you see happening in other cultures that, that lead you to say this is an epidemic that's spreading? Almost every sector of society is experiencing changes that lead to either an increase in caloric intake or a decrease in physical activity. Because it's associated with urbanization in uh, developing countries where people are moving from rural areas into uh, urban areas and they are uh, less physically active because they're not walking to carry water or they're not, you know, so I mean if you, if you just get that picture in your mind you can begin to see and they're dependent on um, buying their food instead of growing it If it, in, in developing countries and the food, almost all food that's bought outside of the home, wherever you are, is made to maximize palatability with sugar and fat and salt. So it's it's a very simple story. that. The causes are the same everywhere, and the only places in the world where you're not seeing increases in obesity from whatever level they started is where there's something else going on that is either protecting them or that's dominating if there are a large number of people who still don't have enough to eat. And if people are walking and, and are not in autom automated uh, transportation, the obesity won't take hold as much. But when that, as soon as those things come in, and even bicycles, you know, the number of cars has increased, the number of bicycles has decreased in China. And, you know, <laughs> it's very predictable. <laughs> when Michael Pollan was uh, talking, and in some of his works, he said that, he was talking about journalism in this sense, he said there's finally a sense in, from journalists that this is a real and important issue, that food politics matters because it's about health and environment and social structure. You come from it from a public health perspective. Do you find that the people who write the Ag Bill are starting to understand that the decisions they make about crop subsidies, about sugar subsidies, 
directly relate to their constituents and their constituents' health in their neighborhoods? I would like to think that policymakers are recognizing that and able to act on it. So I think that they're aware. And in terms of low-hanging fruit, many policymakers jump out there and try to do things, especially in their localities, that are helpful. The ones in the physical activity area are probably easier to do politically. Bicycle paths, greenways, and things that um, that help people to be more active. The, the difficulty there might be getting people to use those things or safety issues associated with cycling and so forth. The things, as, as things become more structural, they get harder. Housing redesign, green space around housing, um, how people move around within housing developments, neighborhood design, you know, certain areas you can retrofit to be more walkable, certain areas you can't. Um, air quality, you know, environmental issues, what do you have to do to get the air quality to a level where it's actually healthy for people to go walking and running outside. And so if you, if you go up a ladder of difficulty, when you get to food-related policies and economic-related policies, then you have problems. This is, may seem like an odd analogy, but when you look at the uh, marriage equality laws that were being debated, and you see how the power of the business sector got politicians to change their views, that gives you an example of how important the way we live is to businesses. And unfortunately, many of the things that you would have to change are not yet things that businesses see in their best interest to do. So I think policymakers are aware. Um, and some policymakers have had epiphanies in relation to their own or their family health and are trying hard, but you know, the educational solutions seem really easy uh, compared to regulation of the food advertising. <laughs> you know, you have uh, First Amendment issues, so yes, we're getting there. <laughs> A recent study suggests that re- you've already touched on this, but I'm curious about you going into a little more. A recent study suggests that the reasons for disparity in obesity rates between um, African Americans and white women in in America much more complex than than fruit and vegetable intake, exercise, socioeconomic factors. This is these are the things you just were were speaking of. But so given that that they're complex and that it is political, and that as you said earlier, t- diet programs were sort of geared to to, to white women who are interested in losing weight. What's the message you take to African-American women who look at their bodies and may say, yeah, I'm overweight but attractive? Right, or I'm overweight and um, it's not a health issue for me, uh, it's not a social issue for me, or I like the you know, hundreds of people who've come to some of my studies, I'm overweight but everything I try, I just gain it back. Or I don't have support because people tell me, well, why are you bothering? You're okay. You know, the tolerance that might be there. So I think the first message that I have taken to uh, black women in particular is this is a health issue or will be a health issue. I used a technique when I was working with an organization that's now called the Black Women's Health Imperative. used to be the uh, National Black Women's Health Project 
that was a, a, a spinoff of the women's movement years back for black women. And I had got my bar graph showing all the disparities and black-white comparisons and stuff like that, and I took all the bars for the white women off. I gave each one a chart. Find your weight and height when you were just coming out of high school. Find that. Okay, that's your body mass index level. Now, add 20 pounds or add 30 pounds. Go over and look at your BMI there, and to get that in your head. And then I showed them a bar graph of the likelihood of developing diabetes at those different BMI levels. And I, really, I felt that I was affected because one woman in particular came up to me and said, this is the first time I've thought about my, my weight as a health issue. But now you show me that while I was being rebellious against the white image, I might be harming myself. We have really tried to suppress the comparisons now. Talking to epidemiologists and public health people, talking among ourselves, first of all, maybe reinforcing the idea that these things are intractable. Because even though I can say we should do something about this, all people see is the black bar is higher than the white bar and that kind of stuff. The conversation has to be entirely different. It's, so we're now going it without the, without the extra bar graph, and we're showing people how many African Americans have weight-related health problems, uh, that there are ways to address these problems, that change is needed in communities to make it easier for people to address these problems, and that they're the only people who can make these changes to figure out what changes they want and to, to demand them. This is from the, yeah, this is from the NIH. There are racial differences. There are physical differences in races. I thought we had part of what we were looking at was saying that, you know, there's there's such little difference between our skin. There's the skin tone, yeah, yeah. but little more. Well, there are absolutely factors that have to do with those designations. But the point is, and I agree with you completely, those are social political factors. They are not biological factors. They they could be something biological. We haven't. We don't know everything, but we know. You know, I, my, my list of sociopolitical factors that could explain this is long enough that if I keep, you know, I won't run out of things to look at in that, in that, that sphere. Um, yeah, so the, the experts in uh, sort of race and health have made a point that um, these categories are not accepted by physical anthropologists and people who really understand race as a concept, you know, as a physical anthropology concept, that we're all, the race is human. So how did your, health, your public health expertise and your focus as a scientist on the data of health and, and, and nutrition, how was that influenced by your, your political thinking and, and, the, and the world you grew up in, in, in the civil rights era? The health disparities or the inequities in health such that for many, many conditions, not everything, but for many, many conditions, including obesity, people of African-American um, origins and, and other minority populations have worse health, you know, shorter lives and more diseases and less health care. So in the beginning, it was a calling card um, politically to take the data and show, see how we have been treated. And you can't deny it because here's the hard evidence in death rates using those, um, those figures to show that if the lives of black people were 
the same, had the same opportunities and circumstances as the lives of white people, there would be X number fewer deaths in the black community. And that was started through um, Department of Health and Human Services. Reports were written using those data. And so in the beginning, it was a calling card to get on the agenda. Later on, I realized two things. One, that focusing on the deaths did not lead you to the actual root causes, you know, what it was about people's lives that was leading them to have poor health. Uh, it also tended to stigmatize for people who weren't sensitive. And I began to worry a little bit about repeating this over and over and over again. Give me an example of that, the stigmatization. Well, we call it victim blaming. And, and even when the report was released by Secretary Heckler of Health and Human Services, the message that went with it wasn't the message that we were thinking about. The message was... When was this? This was 1985. The message was, so if those people just change their behaviors, <laughs> they wouldn't die, they wouldn't have as many deaths. And the structural issues underneath were not uh, put forward. I think there was some attention to healthcare access. But I had written a paper about cross, uh, one of the cross, or uh, uh, report cross-cutting issues. And I was writing about nutrition, and I got the message from some of the people in the government who had solicited the paper, take that stuff about poverty out. And I said, well, I'm sorry, you can't talk about nutrition and health disparities without talking about poverty. Well, that's not in our mandate. That's another department. <laughs> you know? So, you know, there was, a, there was an effort to, to suppress those findings. And so that was the message. So the, the victim blaming and the idea that it's going to stigmatize and say, well, it's the cultural things. It's what, it's how, you know, the kind of foods people like, or it's, you know, their behavior, their sexual behavior, or the fact that they just like guns that's cre creating these homicide rates. You know, it's... It, so it, was, it could backfire. Give me your list of the structural issues. I mean, the, the fundamental issues that lead there to be this disparity in health uh, between African-American populations in America and white populations. Uh, well, it play, I mean, it plays out differently in different societies. You know, in, in, in Europe, sometimes people focus more on income. You know, they put income and, and education and other things, and they have social class, and sometimes you can't get out of that class. So I think that, then, you know, in brief, it's opportunity. It's opportunity that starts, it's a cumulative difference in opportunity and exposure in education, in income. Um, you know, when I was raised in Baltimore, it was segregated in the early part until 1964. When I came back after college, it was integrated, and I had met people and I had college friends who lived in parts of Baltimore I didn't even know existed. I just didn't know they were there. And so you're talking about limited space to operate in and then having people decide what you can do and who you are based on your skin color, you know, my, uh, and, and allowing your skin color to influence what they saw as your potential. The other piece of that, I mean, the rest of it, you know, the housing, the conditions that are there, the ghettoization, the, you know, my father was refused a house that he wanted to buy at the closing because it was legal to refuse to sell your house to a colored man. Uh, so he had to find another neighborhood to take us that he could afford and build a house because it was advertised right in the newspaper, you know, apartments or houses, no colored, you know, they was just legal. 
until the 64 civil rights decision. But the other piece that I think is important, what has happened to the better off parts of society, where people have had opportunities to take advantage of all the wonderful changes in society, the acceleration of the gap <laughs> is part of the problem. So it's not just what opportunities people have here, it's how far they are from the people who are wealthy. And if we measure income, we don't usually measure wealth. And just think, you know, what wealth gives you. Wealth gives you a type of security that allows you to accomplish things that people who have to wait, rely on that paycheck don't have. And so it's opportunity and outlook and worldview and the ability to benefit. What things don't, what things will I not try because of my background in segregated schools? That if I had been raised in a mixed environment and, I mean, I think I had it some the teachers did their best to tell us we were the best of the best and we could do anything. So that was good. That was a little cocoon. But when I went out into larger society, people would come to my office, for example, at Cornell and say, can you tell me where to find the professor? They didn't assume that the person sitting at the desk was the professor. You know, it's, it's there's subtleties and then there are big things that you could fix by policy. It's been interesting to watch the discipline of public health embrace the totality of what public health has come to mean in terms of politics and culture? Public health and medicine and health have always been something that's created by social and political systems, by the way people are treated and by things that were policies that were put in place that allowed disease to spread or things like that. So it's not new to public health, but when um, Things are so medicalized, and people think that health is a matter of how often you go to the doctor and how many pills you take. Then you have to learn how to explain what actually creates health. And what creates health is a little bit different from what creates disease. And we're in a, because of our, our brilliance in medical technology and, and our ability to do some things at the treatment level, we even made bariatric surgery a lot safer so that waiting until people are severely obese and then offering them uh, a safe enough procedure to remove the weight is an option. So yes, I mean, it's political, and I think if we're doing our public health job, we will get into the mess of politics as we have to, to get it done. <laughs> you know? Take me back to those women who, who have their body image and they have their issues of, of weight, of maintaining weight or losing weight. What do you tell them about uh, access to food and the kinds of food they should think about choosing? People don't see that they can necessarily affect their food system. They think they have to react to it. When they look at a product on the shelf, they don't see themselves talking to the manufacturer about, I wish you had less salt in this, or could you make me a lower calorie version that tastes just as good? So part of this is to find people who are activist oriented in the community, who can then see the specifics related to weight issues. And that's not gonna be everybody. Just the average person trying to lose weight is not gonna become a political activist because they're trying to lose weight. So you always need the counseling, the activity, how to navigate the food system. But telling people they are victims of food companies doesn't work. Uh, and some people are trying to do that. You can point out the differences in advertising, like what we've worked on target marketing, that the number of ads coming into through black-oriented media, the number of ads in black communities, everything that you can imagine about advertising is disproportionately higher 
in black communities and black black media channels and you know physical physical ads, outdoor ads, and so forth. And that was one of the first um, things that we documented when, when our network started doing research. People don't realize that because how would they compare? You, know, you have to do a study to make that comparison. So then the question is, why is that? Well, usual business practice for marketers to look to see, where can I sell this? And if they see food consumption patterns or they see cultural images that, that can be leveraged to sell a certain product, you do it with food just like you do it with anything else. And the number of food ads and the types of food ads and so forth and the black celebrities and the websites you know, the market is, is very rich in terms for, for, for the companies, and that's something that leads some public health experts to want to tell, to, to just show this to people in black communities and say, look what they're doing to you. But it doesn't work that way, partly because the same companies are in communities in economic ways. And so they're offering scholarships and they're sponsoring concerts, and they are showing images that people might like to see of themselves. A lot of ads now throughout are showing heavier people, um, and they're showing heavier people doing consuming different things and right. doing different things. So is that is that actually, I thought that was good. Oh, look, we're being more accepting of different body types. I mean, I think to normalize weight so that it reduces the bias that is extant about people who are living with obesity, that is good. Mm-hmm. because obesity is the last frontier in terms of stigma and jokes and stuff like that. And it may not be as prevalent in some communities as others, but it is a major problem that, that just ruins the lives of people who are living with obesity. And we're even trying to teach ourselves not to say obese people, because you don't say diabetes people. You say people who have this condition. So we're trying to, to fix the language so that it doesn't stigmatize. Um, The problem is that whatever advertising is out there, whatever kind of people they're showing, not enough of it is showing them eating healthy food. The advertising of food is related to the ability to profit from that food, which means the ability to add things to it, because foods themselves, you can't make much money on food that you haven't done something to. And so the advertising would be wonderful if the predominance... (laughs) the advertising would be towards the behaviors we'd like people to follow and the products we'd like them to buy, but unfortunately that's not the case. That takes us back to what, why it is that foods that are high in salts and sugars uh, and are dense but not nutritious are cheaper. Promoted in ways that are exquisitely sensitive to people's inner needs. You know, you just wish you could turn that to the public good in terms of health because the science of marketing is very, very elaborated and using the internet and stuff. And so I work with marketing researchers and I understand that marketing science is not inherently harmful. It's, it's the marketing of things in ways that cause young children to be branded to certain companies and certain products before they can even, you know, just about say mama and dada, you know. In a sense, we're back to getting those companies to at least make, to be lobbied and pushed to make healthier products. So marketers probably will tell you that they don't see the demand. Now, do they not see the demand because of a pre-existing stereotype? Or is that the demand has not been elaborated to the point where it can drive the economic engine in the other direction? What our work is showing is that 
price is a mediator of some of these demand issues. That, as one of our focus group participants said, you know, so they tell me to eat the whole wheat bread, but if that sandwich costs twice as much as the one with the white bread, I might not buy that sandwich. Nobody wants to really touch food price, except at the taxation level or at the level of subsidizing through programs like SNAP or WIC. But if we could show that pricing foods that people actually want, not, not low-calorie products that they're not going to buy, and so they, but if there's something they want, could get the volume up to drive the um, demand curve in the other direction, then I think that would help a lot. Sugar and salt, we just love it as humans. Yeah. So they may start marketing kale chips to me, and I may buy them, but in the end, won't they just be another vehicle for transmitting sugar and salt to me? I guess what I mean by that is that in the end, it, it doesn't it end up boiling down to we need to make our own, eat less, mostly greens, make it yourself. Well, I don't think that's practical. I think that society has evolved in ways that um, cause people to expect convenience. There's no reason that we can't expect companies, manufacturing companies, with all of their talents to work as hard as possible to find ways to make some of these healthier foods palatable. The, I mean, we do have an innate test uh, um, preference for salt and sweet, but the level, the threshold, is increased, you know, what tastes good to us is manipulated in foods you know, because of the types of foods that we're given. And there's some good data in adults, at least, to show that people's preferences can be changed. The threshold can be lowered for what will taste acceptable. And some people might tell you that products out there now are too sweet for them, but they don't have a choice of getting the sugar out if it's a sweet tea or something like that. So I think that we haven't exhausted the possibilities with what can be done by, by, uh, with food reformulation and so forth. When you were preparing to lead the American Public Health Association, you said that public health needed to tout its successes, to tell more stories. How does that telling of stories create healthier populations? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, yes, I'm seeing more of it. Um, APHA is committed to telling stories and touting successes. Um, first of all, because uh, obesity epidemic and some of the other things that make us the least healthy nation among our peers, which a lot of people don't know, but we're, we're really low ranked against our, our peer uh, nations else, elsewhere in the world. Um, in order to convince people that it's possible to tackle these complex problems that just seem like you know, they're just here to stay, you have to show, we've done this before. <laughs> Look at what's happened in, you know, certain areas of immunizations or maternal and child health. You know, we've got, you know, mortality, maternal mortality has gone down, or we've gotten seat belts in cars. Or we've got, so we have to keep saying to people, it looks like we can't change this, but we can change it. The other, the telling stories, is because we have to create, to generate, catalyze a social movement. We have learned after being, you know, sort of stodgy, data-driven people for years and years and years, and the facts are important, that people listen with their gut, 
not with their head to a lot of this stuff. So the stories are important to dramatize, to explain, you know, to illustrate what the issues are, and to get people where they live in terms of identifying with the person in that story. So the combination, having the facts, but telling the stories to help people connect with the, with, with the issue, uh, it's really going to be the winning combination. We do have to have a social movement to transform our society to keep the things that we like, that we need, but to keep them from killing us. And that's going to take increased awareness among the everyday person. It can't be left to the health sector. It's gotta ha we've got to have every business and people who are thinking about other aspects of society to recognize the influence they have on health. You know, we have to recognize what their missions are too, but we've got, all really got to come together to solve the problem so that when we look forward, you know, another 30 years, we're seeing the future we want, not the one that we've just... In got because we didn't figure it out in time. <laughs> Shriki Kumanyika visited the UW as part of the Wellness and Weight series of spring 2015 to give a talk, 30 Years of the Obesity Epidemic and Counting, Reflections on Lessons Learned at Home and Around the World. For more about the Graduate School Public Lecture Series, search for Weight and Wellness, University of Washington Alumni Association. For more on the guests visiting the UWAA, search the University of Washington Alumni Association. You can also find our at-length interviews there. You can also find the latest at-length interviews on iTunes and by searching for at-length with Steve Scher. Thanks for listening. Support for at-length comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Mm -hmm.